Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is the self-proclaimed writer, traveler, translator, tour guide, and bourbon drinker, David Domine. Welcome to the show, David. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm kind of interested to find out a little bit more. Uh, I know from your background that you are somewhat of a historian and a writer, and you've got all these other things going on. Um, and I'd like to start off with uh, talking a little bit about Louisville, Kentucky, which is your current home and has yep. the unique distinction of being known as Glitterball City. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Louisville? Yeah, so um, I'm not from Louisville originally. I moved there in 1993. I I went to do a stint at law school. I had no desire to go to Louisville, Kentucky. I'm from Wisconsin originally. Most of my 20s at that time, I'd been living and working in Europe. So Louisville was the last place you know I had in mind. Uh, but I ended up there, and what I thought was going to be a year or two uh, turned it out turned out being half of my life. So it kind of became my my new hometown, my adopted hometown. It's the place where I've lived longest any place. And so for me, uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, it feels like home. And, you know, it's not a huge city. Um, you throw in all the outlying areas and, you know, the greater metropolitan area they call Louisville. It's a little over a million people. So it's not a huge city. It's usually, you know, classed as a, a second tier city. Um, and a lot of people, you know, they don't know what to expect. Uh, when they come to Louisville, Kentucky, a lot of people know things, you know, they know Kentucky Fried Chicken. A lot of people know Muhammad Ali was from Louisville. They know about the Louisville Slugger. But there's a lot of um, a lot of local pride and things that are distinctly, you know, Kentuckian or, or Louisvilleian. It's a big bourbon city, if you can imagine that. You know, horse racing is huge. Uh, Churchill Downs is right down the road from where I used to live. So every May we have the huge run for the roses and um the locals they kind of embrace the quirks and the eccentrics and uh the things that make uh louisville an interesting place to live and one of them is the fact that um among other nicknames they call louisville glitterball city because at the height of the world's disco craze at the you know the 70s and 80s you know guess where most of the world's disco balls were coming from they were coming from a company in Louisville, Kentucky, called Omega National Products. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, they had a crew of 25 women who would crank them out by hand every day. And um, today, there's only one of those ladies left. Her name's uh, Yolanda Baker. They call her the reigning queen of disco ball. Um, but of course, she doesn't make as many as she used to. She says if she makes like seven, eight, nine a week now, that's a lot because uh, by the late 90s, China had overtaken Louisville um, because of mass production. So Louisville doesn't make the most uh, of the disco balls. And they call them other things. Uh, Omega National Products calls them uh, mirror balls officially. But they were called glitter balls for a time. Um, and uh, whatever you call it, you know, most people know them as uh, disco balls because of the 70s and 80s. And Louisville doesn't make the most of them anymore, but uh, all the high quality, all the best disco balls in the world, they say, are 
Louisville disco balls and all the iconic disco balls uh, people know, you know, from, from gay bars and from TV and movies, you know, that's what John Travolta was dancing under. That was a Louisville disco ball in Saturday Night Fever. It's what they had at Studio 54 in Chicago. It's that big one they had on Soul Train. That was a, a Louisville disco ball. And it's not surprising this Louisville company would have this tradition making um, disco balls because it was a Kentuckian in 1917 already who first patented the very first myriad reflector. And that was kind of the early disco ball. And like I said, they started um, calling them other things uh, as well. Uh, Most people call them disco balls uh, where I'm from that area. We like to call them glitter balls. I think it's, it's a little catchier name, but whatever you call them, uh, Louisville is a city that is known for its production of uh, mirror balls or glitter balls. And uh, that's just one of uh, a number of things the locals like to embrace. Uh, They embrace the fact that Louisville is the place where the happy birthday song uh, was written in 1893. Um, There's all kinds of little things like that. So that's kind of uh, where the glitter ball uh, name comes from. Just one of uh, many things the city kind of embraces as being something um, uniquely Louisvillean. And I know a lot of people who have watched um, the Gabe Archive show over the many episodes that we've done are big fans of the big gay bars and the discos. And so I just want to point out that if they really are a disco ball fan, they should definitely go to Louisville because as I understand it, the mayor there proclaimed April 1st as Disco Ball Day, and the, yep. one of the largest public monuments in the city of Louisville is an 11-foot um, diameter mirror ball that sits in the city park. Yeah, it kind of travels around, and you can rent bigger ones for parties and such. Um, actually, it's someplace in England. I think it's the Isle of Wight. They have the largest disco ball in the world. I think it's like 33 um, feet in diameter. Well, since um, disco balls have kind of taken off and the mayor has recognized it as being something valuable to the city, now there's a campaign in Louisville. uh, It's called uh, the world's largest disco ball, y'all. And there's an organization trying to raise money to build a disco ball that is twice as large as the one in England in the Isle of Wight. And ideally it will hang someplace um, maybe near the factory where they're made. I don't know how they're coming along with it, but they've had, um, they've had events to uh, raise money. Um, I don't know if anything is set in stone yet, but there is, there's a project underway for Louisville to eventually have the largest disco ball in the world. Well, that sounds very cool. Yeah. Sounds uh, fitting as well. (laughs) Having, having spent a lot of time um, in the 80s and 90s living in the South, um, I lived in Nashville and Atlanta, okay. I, um, I'm kind of familiar with the way the general feeling of those Southern cities is. And so it's a little surprising to find out that um, Louisville actually has a pretty good history with uh, gay bars and gay places. And um, one of the ones that I know you're familiar with has a very interesting name to me. It's called Starbase Q. What was Starbase Q like? So, you know, I moved to Louisville in 1993. And 
there's a pretty um, thriving gay scene as far as gay bars were concerned downtown. Um, there were like five, you know, gay bars within, you know, one or two block radius of each other. And that was kind of the place to go. And um, I'm sure you're going to ask me about the connection. That was the iconic gay bar for years. But it was, I don't know, I think 2004 or 2005, Starbase Q opened up. And it was kind of at the other end of downtown. It was uh, near 9th Street. And 9th Street in Louisville is kind of the infamous dividing line between um, black and white Louisville, they say. And um, that part of uh, West Main Street, it was like warehouses and old factories, um, kind of industrial until until you got into the residential part of the West End. But um, Star, Starbase Q, and this was at a point where I wasn't going out as much as I used to. So I had I I went several times, but that wasn't my that wasn't my hangout place. That was like the alternative to the connection. And I think it was around like for seven years or so. I think closed in 2011, if I remember correctly. But it was it was a good sized bar. It had kind of you know looked like just a lot of times like they do like kind of an abandoned warehouse from the outside. It was in a big old brick building right by you know the 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 entrance ramp to the the highway that runs by, but they had a good sized dance floor. Um, there was a smaller dance floor. There was a performing area where, especially on the weekends, they would have drag shows. And then, um, you know, there was kind of the bar and um, a seating area. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't huge, huge. I mean, it was good size, not compared to the connection though. Connection was huge. But that was like the alternative for a number of years. People not wanting to go to the connection would go um, to Starbase Q. From what I remember, it was attracting more of a younger crowd. Um, by that point, as often happens, you know, with gay bars, um, some nights it seemed like there were more straight people there, especially bachelorette parties and things. Um, so Starbase Q kind of became the alternative for connection, the iconic big gay bar in the city. Now, I have researched thousands of gay bars across the country, most of which are no longer in business. And that name is just distinctive. I get the impression that the owner was a big fan of like Star Trek and sci-fi type stuff. Is that where the name came from? That, that's what I heard. I don't know for a fact, but it's, you know, they did, it did have that kind of sleek space ship kind of look on the inside in parts, especially with there were, there were neon lights, purple lights and stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. I don't know for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Yeah. And their logo to me looks like um, kind of a twisted version of the Starship Enterprise or something, that Q with kind of. coming out. So Yeah, and most people in town, they just call it Q, you know. Um, they were going to go to Q tonight. So that's what most people called it. Yeah, it took me a while to track the information down on that bar for that very reason, because hardly anybody referred to it as Starbase Q, and people would say, oh, the Q, you know. Yeah. And I think even uh, one of the early mentions in your book um, – a dark room in Glitterball City, you refer to a conversation with Ramon and he said, oh, we met him at the queue. And I, yeah. I kept looking and looking, where's the queue? And then finally I, I tracked down the fact that it was called Starbase Queue officially. Yeah, exactly. That's why. 
Now, before we get to the connection, there was another little bar that was opened um, apparently by one of the um, main antagonists in your book uh, called Fusion. Yeah. And that was in a part of town called Butchertown. Yes. What is Butchertown? Um, so the downtown area, you know, there's the main um, commercial corridor that kind of centers around 4th Street, the old shopping district going down to the river where you have Main and Market Street. Um, on West Main, West Market, that's where you get to 9th Street. That's where um, Starbase Q was. But then going the other direction, East Main and East Market, that's that's where you get to a part of town called Butchertown. And uh, it's called Butchertown because that's where a lot of the city slaughterhouses were. And um, it was an area of primarily uh, German and Irish immigrants. A lot of them lived in small uh, shotgun houses, which is the kind of architecture Louisville is especially known for. It's where uh, Thomas Edison lived for a time in the 1860s. You know, he operated right at the Telegraph at Western Union uh, in downtown Louisville for a couple of years. So he had a, he lived in a house in that area. And um, I think there's one slaughterhouse left. So the slaughterhouses have kind of gradually left, but they they still call it Butchertown uh, just because of the history of all the slaughterhouses and, um, and the stockades being down there. One of the big banks down there is called Stockyards, you know, kind of harkens back to that, um, that butcher town um, history. And at one point, you know, in the 1800s, Louisville was a city that rivaled uh, Chicago for being a pork producing center of the country. So there were a lot of uh, slaughterhouses and stockyards down there. But today um, it's mostly just little neighborhoods of old houses. You know, a lot of the houses are from the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 90s, kind of um, that time period. And that's where, um, fusion was and that didn't last for very long uh, it's also where the city's probably only and really well-known um, lesbian bar was located it was called tinks and um, that was around for 10 years that actually closed the same year that um, starbase q did 2011 if i'm um, recalling correctly but um yeah it was i had, i'd only been there once it was a little place um Strangely enough, when the connection closed in 2016, you know, that was the big gay bar, um, the place that kind of took over uh, called Play, um, that is actually in the Butchertown uh, area right now. But yeah, Fusion was a small, a smaller place. You had a clubby kind of after hours kind of house party um, feel to it, you could say. But the, the antagonist you were referring to, um, that, that's one of the guys in the book. His name was Joey Bannis. And he was, um, he was a, well, a lot of people said he never was a manager. So a lot of people said he was a self-proclaimed manager at uh, Starbase Q. But he was a, a very well-known bartender. And he, he stood out. He was quite flamboyant. He usually was shirtless and had ratty jeans held up with, uh, you know, studded belts. But he would always, um, he would always come into work 
painted up in fluorescent body paints. And sometimes he might have a bright blue uh, mohawk. So he was quite... Uh, he was quite well known on the scene just because he stood out physically. He came from a kind of well-to-do family in town, was kind of known to be the bad boy uh, of the family. But um, he he had a faithful clientele. Uh, what people said is he made very good drinks and he was generous with his poor. So that probably, that probably endeared him to a lot of uh, club goers. But he, he ended up leaving Starbase Q. And depending on who you talk to, there's different reasons. He claimed um, he claimed a number of different things. He also claimed he was part owner uh, when he went to Starbase Q, and he, he claimed he was cheated out of his half of the business. And there were some litigation, um, litigation matters that never uh, were resolved as far as I know. But when he went to Fusion, and it was Fusion with a Z, Fusion, um, a lot of his, uh, a lot of his, you know, clients from uh, Starbase Q kind of followed him to Fusion for the brief time he was there, and from what I understand, uh, it it really hurt Starbase Q. It was one of the reasons uh, that they eventually closed because they were just losing. It used to be you'd go on the weekend, you know, on the weeknights, and it was packed. But then it got you go on the weekends, and there'd be thirty people there. So um, supposedly Joey um, taking clients with him was one of the factors. The other thing is, you know, things were changing. Uh, More people were going on, you know, social media sites and meeting people that way, you know, just kind of happened all over the country that, you know, gay bars weren't the only place to go out and meet people. So it was one of the contributing factors from what I hear uh, for why Starbase Q closed. But yeah, Fusion wasn't around for very long. And uh, wherever he was, though, uh, Joey Bannis uh, had problems uh, with uh, being a little uh, generous with tips. He liked to give himself tips on other people's credit cards and stuff. So there's just dozens and dozens of people. If you bring up Joey Bannis's name in Louisville, you know, from his, his days as a bartender or a self-professed club owner, um, everyone you talk to this, oh, I remember I went to, I went to Q one night and my drink, you know, the tab was $60 and I went home the next morning, there was $300 extra on my credit card. So he had, um, he had kind of a reputation for stealing and, um, stealing credit cards, people's IDs and stuff. And the same thing happened at Q as far, or, uh, when he left Q and what happened at, um, Fusion as far as I know. But, um, yeah, Fusion was a much smaller place, and it didn't last for very long. Was um, I've heard some rumors from some of my research that uh, Joey was one of the owners of Fusion. Is that another thing that he just made up, or was he actually? Well, I've seen no proof that he was an owner. He said he was an owner. Um, but I know people involved with the bar, they said he was never an owner. So it depends on who you talk to. I never found any proof other than Joey saying he was an owner. And like I did mention, there was a lawsuit. Um, It really, nothing ever came to fruition because Joey ended up um, being charged with murder and and going to prison. But there were, there, there was a lawsuit in the works where he was, you know, claiming that 
part of its club had been stolen. So there is some kind of litigation that was ongoing that does seem to intimate that maybe he was part owner of that place. So, so far we've touched on Starbase Q, which was a decent sized club and Fusion, Mm -hmm. which was a much smaller club. Yes. The third club that I want to talk about in Louisville is a club that I have some tangential contact with. Uh, It's called The Connection. And while I was living in Nashville, and then later when I moved to Atlanta and visited Nashville to see friends, I used to go to a club called The Connection there. And that was was a spinoff of the one from Louisville. The one in Nashville was massive. I mean, it was like being in a shopping mall. You had a huge dance room. You had a huge show bar that looked like a Broadway theater. You had a huge mm-hmm. country western bar. You had a retail store that was bigger than most, you know, freestanding retail stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a monstrous property. What was the and one in, in Louisville like? That's how the one in Louisville was like. I take my friends from like uh, New York City and Los Angeles. They come to town. To town i take them to the connection and their jaws would just drop they'd say they'd never seen anything that big in you know new york or los angeles but it was the same thing it was a whole complex it took up um half a city block and it had if i remember correctly it opened in 18 in 1988 and uh closed in 2016 so in that like 30 years or so it was around it, you know, was remodeled and changed around. But when I first went there, um, they had a restaurant in the place. Um, there was a martini and a piano bar. And um, there was a shower bar. And those, um, you could just go whenever there was no cover. But then if you crossed over into the other side where you had to pay cover, um, that's where you uh, go off to the side and there was a stripper bar and then you left that and behind that was an enormous uh, dance floor with a raised level uh, bar that went around half of it and then another bar on the other side and then w- when you left the dance floor which was huge then you could go out to an outdoor patio that had a bar and that was huge and then you'd leave that, and that would take you into the show bar, which was huge. Um, I don't remember how it, the show bar sat hundreds of people, and there was a huge bar all along the back wall. They usually had like seven or eight bartenders. Bathrooms were back there, but um, they had their own cast of um, you know performers, and weekend drag shows were huge there. And um, like I said, it was huge. Uh, like people from from major cities would come to Louisville. We take them to the connection, and we, it was always the same reaction. They couldn't believe that there was a gay bar that big in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's a shame. Um, it's a shame it's gone. There's, they tore it down. There's a, a hotel there now, but um, since they're gone, um, like I said, play in Butchertown, which also. Uh, has one in Nashville. I think it started in Nashville and then they did their second one in Louisville. But um, yeah, that you talk to, you talk to Louisvillians in the gay community and the connection is the iconic gay bar. Everyone knows the connection. Yeah. I, I mean, I lived in Atlanta for a long time and I always thought Backstreet was big and some of the bars that I went to, but the connection in Nashville 
Um, I seem to remember the show bar being set up a lot like um, one of those multiplex movie theaters where you had stage seating. It wasn't everybody was on one floor and you had to look over other people's heads. Yeah, it was it was kind of like an auditorium feel. You went down yeah. a couple. There were several different levels as you went down to the stage area. Yeah, and definitely. at the top at the top level there was a big long bar, so you could stand at the bar there, order your drinks, and you were looking over the entire crowd down to the mm-hmm. huge. Uh, performance stage where they could do production numbers. They had a runway coming up the middle of the stage so they could interact with the audience. I mean, it was a a major, major production. It wasn't like your typical, you know, one drag queen lip syncing to a song. It was a big ordeal. Yeah, no, they had their own, they had their own cast. It was called La Boy La Femme. And, you know, the individuals would perform, but they do group numbers with choreography and and great stage setting as well. And the thing that was particularly nice about it, as you mentioned with the one in Louisville, is that it was a complex. So if yeah. you went to the section that was the Country Western Bar, for example, in Nashville, it was a different environment. You didn't have mm-hmm. a show going on in the background. You had your own. It was like being in a separate Country Western Bar or a separate, you know, disco dance bar or a separate, you know, outdoor patio bar. They were all so big and roomy that they could mm-hmm. all have their own personality and attract anybody. You could go with a group of 10 people who didn't like the same kind of music or entertainment, and they would all have a good time somewhere in that yeah. bar. Yeah, that's how it was. Exactly. And that's pretty impressive for a town, you know, the size of Louisville. Yeah. And, uh, and a state as conservative as Kentucky is. Yeah. And the thing is, it's it's like a lot of southern areas, a lot of conservative areas. You know, Kentucky is a very red state, but Louisville is a very blue um, oasis in the middle of a conservative state. So Louisville itself is a very, very progressive, a very welcoming city for the most part. Now, I, I kind of was surprised the same way. What part of uh, Wisconsin are you from? Well, I grew up in the center of the state. It's a small little town called Wisconsin Rapids. Not much. Yeah, nobody knows anything about anything from Wisconsin Rapids, other than it's kind of, it's officially the geographic heart of the state. And right down the road um, in Plainfield, that's where our famous serial killer Ed Gein was from. So he's probably my area's most claim to fame, Ed Gein. Well, the guy that's psycho. Yeah. So you moved to this this new place in Louisville. Um, it became your home. You had a, a gay environment around you that whether or not you went to the bar every weekend, you knew there was a community there. You knew that it was vibrant and interesting and and it kind of gave you a sense of, of community and belonging there. And you lived um, more in town in a very stylish neighborhood that had some nice older homes in it. And I remember reading about this one particular house. Uh, it was located at 1435 South 4th Street. And right. it was on the market. It was a gigantic house. I mean, as from what I've read recently about it, it was something like eight bedrooms, six bathrooms, and what, six or 7,000 square feet? I mean, it was a large house. It's like over 10,000 square feet, 11, 11 bedrooms. Oh, wow. Um, 
Yeah, 11 bedrooms. Um, the place I was living in had six bedrooms. Uh, so yeah, you're talking about old Louisville and old Louisville is immediately adjacent to the downtown area, uh, immediately to the south. And um, it's kind of a stylish area in that it's full of beautiful old Victorian mansions and old houses. But in the city, it's always kind of been looked down upon because it's close to downtown. And, um, you know, it's what happened in a lot of downtown neighborhoods by the 60s and 70s. It was run down. A lot of the places were chopped up into student apartments and things like that. So a lot of the old-time Louisvillians, they kind of they think of old Louisville kind of as a bad part of town. It has kind of an image problem, but um, it's full of these beautiful old mansions. It's one of the largest historic preservation districts in the country. There's like 1400 old homes and mansions spread out over 45 square blocks. So, you know, I moved there in 94. I was, I had spent the previous five years in Europe and I thought I kind of knew everything. And I came to Louisville, Kentucky, and I saw these beautiful old houses, this great architecture. I couldn't, understand why I'd never heard about the neighborhood. And so that's where I lived uh, when I was going to law school and, and ended up going to graduate school and teaching at the university. But in 1999, I had a chance, uh, my partner and I, we bought a house on Third Street. Um, that's kind of the old, what many considered the old millionaire's row back in the day. Our house was one of the smaller ones, you know, six bedrooms, about 4,000 square feet. But your typical house in old Louisville is about 5,500 square feet, has eight or 10 bedrooms. And uh, we lived there till um, 2008. And uh, I got into food writing. I was I was working on a cookbook and I was writing travel pieces and columns for magazines while I lived at that house. But the woman we bought it from uh, just kind of offhandedly mentioned that the house was haunted. And uh, I love haunted houses and scary stuff like that, but I don't believe in ghosts myself. So I just didn't really think anything of it, but uh, moved in and all these crazy things she told me would happen. And the house began to happen. I began hearing footsteps in the middle of the night. She told she told us not to hang pictures on this certain wall because the ghost, you know, Lucy, the poltergeist, she called her. She didn't like pictures on that wall, and she'd knock them down if we put any pictures there. Well, we moved in. What's the first thing I did? I hung a picture on that wall. By the end of that day, the picture was lying face down on the tile floor. The glass was broken out. We could never have a picture on that wall. And long story short, everything she told me would happen happened, you know, kind of of a paranormal nature in the house. In the end, I never did see a ghost. I'm still a skeptic today. I say seeing is believing, but, you know, paranormal is kind of fascinating and people love ghost stories and you don't need to believe in ghosts to enjoy a good ghost story. So what I did is I started meeting people and with all these old houses, you know, the average house down there has been around like 130 years. And they all had started collecting these stories and writing them down. And that's what got me into writing um, books. And it turns out a lot of the books were about um, the old Louisville neighborhood. Well, in 2008, we left the house that we had, the old Widmer house on Third Street. And um, around the corner, there was this big house, the one you mentioned at 1435 South 4th Street. Locals called it the Richard Robinson house, named after the first uh, man who had lived there. He had built it, lived there for the first 20 years. He was a kind of dry goods and hardware, hardware uh, merchant. 
but um, it was huge. It had 11 bedrooms, but they had the old original wine cellar from when the mansion was first built. And uh, being a food writer, I got it into my head. I wanted to have a wine cellar. And so we went and looked at the house, but it was a, the house was a disaster. The, the kitchen looked like it was bombed out. The carriage house was falling apart. Uh, the wine cellar uh, was a mess. And so we said, no, thanks, and uh, went to the current house where we live today. But then two years later, it was the morning of June uh, 18th, 2010. I turned on the news as I was having my morning coffee. And I looked up, and on the screen, they were showing a house, and it looked kind of familiar. And it was cordoned off with, you know, police caution tape, and police were buzzing around, and people were going in and out of the house carrying things. And that's when I realized it was 1435 South 4th Street, the house that we had almost bought. And it turns out that um, the night before, police had been called to the residence. There was a 911 call. And uh, they thought they were uh, arriving to break up a domestic disturbance. Uh, it turns out the guy who bought the house, the guy who had the appointment with the real estate agent after we looked at it, a guy named Jeffrey Munt, who had just moved back to Louisville from Chicago, he bought the house. Well, right after he moved in, he met Joey Bannis, the, the famous bartender down at Starbase Q and Fusion. And the two started dating, and Joey moved into the house with him. And on Fourth Street, uh, people thought it was just they thought it was just two guys living together, you know, fixing up an old house. And uh, what they didn't know is the guys kind of had a dark side to their lives in the house there. And the night before nine one one was called, it was Jeffrey. He was barricaded in one of the rooms, uh, one of the bedrooms on the second floor. Uh, pleading for the police to come because he said Joey had a hammer. He was trying to break through the wooden door and come inside and murder him. Well, the police came. They thought it was like a regular domestic dispute. They separated the two parties, tried to get each side of the story. And that's when they began hearing grumblings about something down in the wine cellar. And so they went down to the wine cellar. Uh, and the wine cellar was one of two rooms in the basement at the time that had a dirt floor. And uh, they started digging because there was a spot on the dirt floor that looked like it had been dug up and, you know, filled in. And they started to dig. And hours later, four feet under the surface of the uh, earth, they dug up a, a blue Rubbermaid storage container. And in it were the remains of Jamie Carroll. He was a 37-year-old hairdresser from the eastern part of the state. He had been shot and stabbed. Maybe his throat had been slashed, they said. He had been hogtied, and uh, they had used a sledgehammer to break his bones to fit him inside this storage bin. And so then the big question was, you know, how'd this guy get down here and why? Who killed him? Well, both Joey and Jeffrey blamed the other They said the other had killed Jamie. They said the other had forced them to help with the cover-up and disposal of the body. And they both claimed to have been living in fear of the other for the previous seven months. And so three three years later, 2013, Louisville had the most scandalous murder trials it had had seen in a long time. Uh, A lot of people 
called it the trial of he said, he said, because they pointed the finger at each other. Other people called it the pink triangle murder because of the gay aspect. Turns out Jamie Carroll, among other things, was the guy's drug dealer. But uh, he was her sometimes boyfriend as well. It turns out they were all in bed that night when Jamie uh, was killed. But the real question was, you know, who killed him and why? And, you know, always being someone who liked to write about Louisville, you know, this was my bailiwick. It's just something kind of fell into my lap. I knew the people involved. It was right around the corner from where I had lived. And uh, I'm nosy. So I went to those trials. I sat through every day of those um, uh, three weeks for each of the trials and kind of tried to piece together you know, what went on that night? What happened to Jamie Carroll ending up dead in a Rubbermaid uh, tote in the basement of this old house? And it was fascinating. It was fascinating to be in the, the, the courtroom and, and see the courtroom drama. But it was even more fascinating because in talking to locals, you know, neighbors, and then uh, a lot of people in the gay community because, you know, they were quite well-known, and it had a, a big impact on the gay community. You know, a lot, a lot of the locals, they kind of shook their heads and like, you know, gays causing, you know, trouble again. They, they really sensationalized the murder, and um, the gay aspect was a big part of it. So um, I sat through the trials. I did research. I talked to people trying to figure out what really happened that night. And uh, every time I go back and read my book or go back and look at my trial notes, I come to a different conclusion. There's just so many strange uh, angles to this story. It's a really, really strange story because not only do we have this strange kind of love triangle, you know, um, the couple and their, their boyfriend ending up dead. Turns out the house where the body was found has had a spooky past uh, most of its existence. There was a sanatorium in the 20s and 30s and 40s there. They got, the doctor practicing there had a bad reputation. He was brought up on ethics charges. He was accused of murdering patients there. Other people had died in the house. Um, they had an S&M club, supposedly down in the basement where the wine, uh, the wine cellar was for a brief time. And that led me into a whole other down a whole other rabbit hole because it turns out Louisville has a thriving uh, S&M scene, an underground S&M scene. And when I say underground, I mean literally underground. A uh, number of years ago, down actually that area where you know the connection was, that kind of area, um, by the Second Street Bridge, there's this place called Whiskey Row. It's a lot of old uh, cast iron fronted buildings, you know, from the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and they were remodeling uh, a restaurant, and in the process, they were in the basement, and they broke through the floor into a sub-basement, and they found this whole warren of interlinked S&M clubs, uh, and the big one was called Latex, and it turns out, like, from the 70s to the 90s, at least, there was a striving the striving S&M scene in town. And it turns out um, there's more than that. I got to talk to some people who were involved in the scene. Uh, there was kind of an, a clandestine S&M club in the neighborhood, not too far from the house where the murder uh, took place. So I kind of got tricked into going there one night. That was a really interesting experience. But uh, 
Yeah, the fascinating thing about this um, this trial and this murder and, and writing this book is all the fascinating things I found out about the Louisville, you know, um, gay scene. Um, just kind of the the fringe groups that we have in the city and uh, the interesting characters that the city is known for. And it turns out Old Louisville has a lot of interesting characters. So part of the fun of the book was, uh, you know, being out on my own and meeting people and finding out their stories. And um, from these people, getting information that kind of helped me find out more about this terrible murder that took place and which forms the backbone of the book we were talking about, A Dark Room and Glitter of All City. And, you know, the funny thing about it, that's what brought us together. That's what made me reach out and connect to you. Uh, this past Christmas, 2021, um, a good friend of mine who's been very supportive of my Gabe Archives project, his name is Hunter, and he's a professor of LGBT studies locally. Um, and he has encouraged me through the process of researching these bars and reminiscing to, he said one thing that would be that would be interesting to him would be uh, gay bars and gay stories that have some sort of a murder or mayhem association to them. So mm-hmm. this past Christmas in 2021, he gave me a gift card for Christmas. And I said, well, I'm going to go on Amazon and do a little research and I'm going to buy a book to um, further my knowledge in that area. And I stumbled across a dark room in Glitterball City, uh, the subtitle being Murder, Secrets, and Scandal in Old Louisville. Uh-huh. And I said, that's it. Hunter has to get this for me for Christmas. Uh-huh. So I bought the book, and I, there was still extra money on the card. And I said, what else would I put with that? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to buy a 12-inch mirror ball to add to my <laughs> little mirror ball collection. Okay. And um, not knowing why it was called glitter ball city or not knowing Uh anything about it and i come to find out that uh, one of the fundraisers that have been done involved selling a 12 inch glitter ball from i think starbase q that was was, connection oh connection connection so i have the exact same size glitter ball now in my living room um but that's kind of what brought us together and i started reading the Uh book and my initial impression when I first opened a book and started reading it is I hope they get to this, you know, the details of the story early. Uh-huh. And then I put, I, I bought, I think it arrived on a Tuesday um, around lunchtime. And by Wednesday night, I was finished with the book. I could not put it down. There are more interesting details about, you know, drag queens and, and gay personalities, and old Louisville, and just all kinds of colorful details that made me feel like I was part of the story, not just reading an article on page six in the New York Times that said, you know, gruesome murder in gay mansion or something. Uh It's a really compelling story that gives you a good taste for what the city of Louisville was like at that time, what the neighborhood's like, what the community's like, you know, all kinds of, there's all kinds of interesting people in the book that are actually mm-hmm. based on, they are actually real people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got this strange image of you lurking around in the dark, wearing like all black, like a ninja with a little flashlight 
kind of looking in the back alleys and, and basements of, of old Louisville for, for clues. Well, it's kind of how I am. I mean, and, you know, people, they, they like, how do you meet these people? You know, cause I, I, I tend to meet some really outlandish people. And the thing is, if you put yourself out there, if you just, you know, you go sit on a park bench or, and I like to go sit on the park bench like at midnight or I just go walking places. And like, you know, fortunately being a, I'm six foot four, weigh like 250 pounds. I, you know, I'm relatively safe. I know that there are other people, especially women, you know, they don't have that luxury, but I, I like to go out walking in the middle of the night. And if you just give people a chance, you'll meet people. And if you talk to them, there are so many interesting stories. And so a lot of the, the interesting characters, well, some of them are friends of mine in the book and others were just neighborhood people, you know, and um, some people have just, they're like, well, you made up these people, right? And I'm like, nope, you know, and uh, people who live in old Louisville, they're like, oh yeah, I know who that is. Or, you know, I've had people claim that I, I made up a lot of these characters, but you talk to anyone in the neighborhood, anyone in the city and they'll say, oh yeah, I know who that is. I mean, they will, they will back me up a hundred percent that, these are actual real life characters. And it was a really interesting perspective for me. Um, several months back, I interviewed uh, the filmmaker, Todd Stevens, and um, probably his most well-known collection of movies is a trilogy that takes place in Sandusky, Ohio. And um, the first one was The Edge of 17, which came out, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago about a coming out story of a, um, of a young guy in Sandusky and experiences at the bar and so on. It was made into a movie with Leah Delaria. Um, hmm. And the most recent segment of his story is a book called Swan Song, which is about an octogenarian uh, who's in a nursing home and escapes to go back to his old life in downtown Sandusky. And um. That character is played by Udo Kier, who is very quirky and um, kind of unbelievably flamboyant for uh-huh. an octogenarian in a small town in Ohio. But the main character in Todd's story was himself coming out as a 17-year-old boy. And mm-hmm. Udo Kier plays a main character um, in the Swan Song movie, who is also based on a local character that everybody knows. And so sometimes it's the it's when you talk about the people that are really based in true people yeah. that it's the most unbelievable, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, truth is always stranger than fiction. Um, and like this, the whole story, the, the backbone of this book, you know, you, there's so many crazy details. You just couldn't make it up. And so I definitely agree with you there. Truth is always stranger than fiction. But you did a great job with the book. And I know this was your, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this was book Lucky 13, right? Yes, I was hoping it's Lucky 13, yeah. And of course, a lot of my previous books, there were you know, local books. Um, my first one came out in 2005. So, you know, a lot of those were like haunted history kind of folklore books. I was, like I said, I was writing cookbooks and travel guides. But this is definitely, that's nonfiction, like I usually write, but it's definitely a different it's a different genre, and uh, so far, so good. You know, it just came out in October and got a good review in the uh, New York Times. That really helped, and uh, I'm 
in talks with HBO. They want to turn this into a docu-series, so we're working out the details of um, some true crime uh, show that's going to come out of this. So hopefully in a couple of years, we'll be able to see this on HBO. I was just going to ask you that question, if we're going to see a movie or a, or a series out of it, because it is just so rich and colorful and entertaining that I can't imagine, you know, it wouldn't get good ratings as, as a TV yeah. show or movie. Yeah, well, knock on wood in a couple of years, let's hope we see something on HBO. Like we're, we're just in the, uh, the initial phases, we're working things out, but it's looking pretty good so far. Well, I wish you all the best with that. Thanks. You're welcome. And I know you also have another um, job, so to speak, in addition to your writing, that uh, you run a local tour guide service there in Louisville that is taking tourists and locals and whoever wants to go, anybody who's interested, on tours of uh, old Louisville and talking about the history and the ghost stories and all that. Um, has that always been an interest ever since you moved there? You know, and I, like I said, I moved to Louisville, especially old Louisville. I saw all these beautiful homes and mansions, and it was just a spectacular neighborhood. And I couldn't understand why the city wasn't, you know, doing more to promote that part of the neighborhood or the, excuse me, I should say the city. And so when I started writing my first books, I realized part of it was because I wanted to kind of tout the virtues of the neighborhood. I realized, you know, like I said, you don't have to believe in ghost stories to enjoy a good ghost story, but there's a lot more to ghost stories and paranormal things than just spooky stuff. There's history, there's architecture, there's real life characters. So what I discovered is the stories, the legends and the folklore that I was writing down kind of uh, served as a vehicle to educate about the neighborhood. So people began reading my stories, and then they wanted to see the places they were reading about. So that's how we got into giving tours. It started off in 2004 as a way to kind of get people on the streets and promote and make money for different neighborhood associations. And as my books keep coming, you know, people want more. And so we do daytime tours and we do them uh, March through November, seven days a week. Right now we're in the off season. So my friend Angelique, she's kind of taking over. It's cold, so we don't get as many people, but we're still doing them in the winter as well. But we get people from all over the world. They come at night. They want to hear the haunted history stories. They come during the day. They want to see the architectural details. Everyone wants to see the, the murder house, as the locals call it. Um, uh, the New York Times wrote up my tours not too long ago, which has been really great. So we get people from all over the world. And um, I love it because it's a way for me to get out on the streets and just kind of show off this neighborhood that I've fallen in love with. And um, most people, they come to, to old Louisville and they're just, they're blown away by the beautiful architecture. And like I said, just block after block after old, um, old houses and, and mansions. And so, yeah, I teach at the university. I write when I'm not doing that. I'm probably down in old Louisville, creeping around with groups, showing people, uh, the, the spooky parts of the neighborhood, some of the hidden parts of the neighborhood, trying to kind of show off the, the best parts of the neighborhood, more picturesque parts of this beautiful Victoria neighborhood they call Old Louisville. Now, just so people don't get the wrong impression that you're from some tiny little town in Wisconsin and you move to Louisville and think you're in the big city, uh, you are quite the avid traveler. 
I mean, you, you've experienced cities around the world. You enjoy traveling. You enjoy experiencing uh, cuisine all over the place. And in fact, right now you're in Mexico, correct? Yeah, I'm in Mexico right now. Um, I love Mexico. I used to study here when I was in my younger years. But most of my 20s, I lived or studied abroad. I lived in Austria for five years. I was in Germany for a year, Italy and Spain for half a year. I volunteered. My first trip ever was to go to the Philippines and volunteer one summer. But yeah, I travel whenever I can. The first three weeks in December, I was in Mexico and I came back for Christmas. And then after Christmas, I flew to Munich, Germany, which uh, I love. I normally take students there, but this year, COVID kind of ruined all that. So I had my plane tickets. So I still went. I went to Lyon, France. I went to Paris. went to Istanbul. went to London. Kind of goofed around and got back in Louisville to start my um, spring semester classes at the university. And then hopped on a plane and I'm in Mexico for the next three weeks. So I'm going to do some online teaching while I'm down here. The reason I wanted to mention that is because it puts a different perspective on your appreciation of Louisville. It's not like Louisville is the greatest place or the most historic place you've ever been, but you've lived there and you've, you've gotten to know the charm of the city. And so yeah. it, it puts a different spin on your, on your opinion of what Louisville is like compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think it's my, it might be the fact that I had lived around the world before I ended up in Louisville. And what happens is a lot of times you don't appreciate, you know, what's in your own backyard. And so a lot of times, you know, Americans, they leave and um, they, they discover good things about their country, but then they discover other things that aren't so great about their country. So, but I came back and I was just, I don't know, I had this appreciation for history and architecture that I'd always had, but I kind of find tuned it, I guess, in Louisville, and it turned out to be a good place to do that. So uh, I, I discovered another reason why I do the books and do the tours is in Louisville, they're kind of, they're kind of, they're not, they're not boastful people for the most part. They're kind of understated. And so being an out-of-towner myself, you know, I see the neighborhood in fresh eyes and I can kind of take it upon myself to tell people what's great about the city, what's great about this neighborhood. Whereas the locals, maybe they don't think they're, you know, the old timers, I, sh I should say, maybe they don't think, you know, they're worthy of it or they don't think that the city is all that great. But uh, someone like me who comes and sees it with fresh eyes, they, they have a different take on it. And uh, the books I write, the tours I give kind of lets me continue to do this to let people know what an interesting place Louisville is and why they should come see us. So if you're ever, if you're ever down there, let me know and I'll, I'll show you around the neighborhood. Awesome. I am so glad that you ended up moving to Louisville because as part of this project, one of my hardest um, things to do is to track down information on obscure places. You know, I can find all the information I want on Studio 54. Nobody needs to hear that. Yeah. And by you highlighting a story from, you know, as you said, a second tier city in Kentucky, it brought more information to me and help me expand my research of gay bars. So I really appreciate what you've done with that and, um, and what you've done, you know, highlighting the story, which is, I think everybody should read that book. Um, I will definitely put a link up in the end so people can find it, but I, I think everybody should read the book. It's a great book and it's a very interesting story. So thank you for sharing the story of your experience in Louisville and the, and the bars that are, uh, that are there. 
And uh, I just can't say enough. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, good luck. I look forward to, to hearing to hearing more of your shows in the future. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.